Our New Testament lesson is from the book of Acts, chapter 11, beginning with the first verse. Now the apostles and the believers who were in Judea heard that the Gentiles had also accepted the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him, saying, Why do you go to uncircumcised men and eat with them? Then Peter began to explain it to them step by step, saying, I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision. There was something like a large sheet coming down from heaven, being lowered by its four corners, and it came close to me. As I looked at it closely, I saw four-footed animals, beasts of prey, reptiles, and birds of the air. I also heard a voice saying to me, Get up, Peter. Kill and eat. But I replied, By no means, Lord, for nothing profane or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But a second time the voice answered from heaven, What God has made clean you must not call profane. This happened three times. Then everything was pulled up again to heaven. At that very moment, three men sent to me from Caesarea arrived at the house where we were. The Spirit told me to go with them and not make a distinction between them and us. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. He told us how he had seen the angel standing in his house and saying, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will give you a message by which you and your entire household will be saved. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them, just as it had upon us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave them the same gift that he gave us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could hinder God? When they heard this, they were silenced. And they praised God, saying, Then God has given even to the Gentiles the repentance that leads to life. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Will you pray with me? From cowardice that dares not face new truth, from laziness content with half-truth, from arrogance that thinks it knows all truth, good Lord, deliver us. Amen. When I was growing up, uh, one of my favorite things to do with my mom was watch reruns of the I Love Lucy show. Remember this show? And we would watch, and you know, there's Ricky and Lucy Ricardo, and Ricky's in show business, and Lucy desperately wants to get in on the show business action, and inevitably she concocts these schemes and ends up in all kinds of trouble. And Desi Arnaz, playing Ricky, always in that memorable Cuban accent, I won't even attempt it, he comes in and says what? Lucy, you've got some explaining to do. I know, right? I told you I'm not even going to try. Um... That's Peter in the scripture, right? 
He's gone back to Jerusalem and he faces this onslaught of criticism from the early church leaders because news has gotten around that Peter had been out in Joppa and he, not only has he gone into the house of a Gentile, he's gone into the house of a Roman centurion. He's not only gone in the house, he's actually sat down and preached to them, so shared intimate details of his faith. And then if that weren't enough, he has eaten a meal in their home. Christians, as Jennifer's explaining, up until this point were all faithful Jews and they abided by the covenant that God had established with Israel. And they've heard rumors, maybe a little gossip even, that Peter has eaten with a Gentile. I think we should not forget, particularly in the ancient culture, meals are kind of quick and I mean, I eat a meal in my car, like just quickly trying to uh, get some sustenance. But meals in the ancient culture were, they were serious, intimate occasions. Like you didn't, you shared a meal, you were sharing life. And, and, and don't forget these purity laws, they were, they were sacred. They were a way of expressing love for God, a sign of unity as, as who they were as God's people. So Peter has raised real questions in their minds. Like they want to talk to him. Peter, you've got some explaining to do. Why were you where you were not supposed to be? The Bible's clear, Peter. You're not supposed to go there. Why are you in such intimate situations with them? Those people are not your people, Peter. They're not us. Have you broken the covenant? Have you violated our trust? Have you violated God's trust? This is a, a watershed moment in the life of the church. We call it the Gentile Pentecost, the day that the Holy Spirit fell on those beyond Israel's faith and extended the good news to all the world. But the Jews... The Jewish Christians in Jerusalem want answers. They want an explanation. We get this, right? <laughs> in the church, maybe especially in the Methodist church, uh, somebody says, let's try something new. And what do we do? Uh, you want to try something new? Let's start a committee and we'll uh, evaluate and we'll estimate and explicate and explain everything. And then we can maybe think about doing something new. Spiritual writer Emily Freeman in her book, The Next Right Thing, suggests that our Western minds are trained to go down the path of explaining. We think if we can understand it, then we can control it. We are conditioned to believe that the only reason we should do things is if we know why and where we're headed and for what purpose. Peter is the rock, the head of the church, and he's breaking all the rules. Are the rules changing, Peter? Do the rules even matter anymore? Everything is changing. Peter, what is happening? And so Acts tells us that Peter explained it to them. I love the Greek word for explain here. It literally means to expose, to uncover to lay bare. And it's just a really cool nuance because, I mean, think about it. Peter standing there is completely vulnerable. Completely vulnerable. Think about it. He, he had no scripture to support his actions. 
In fact, if, if anybody was thinking, that they would have known there were plenty of scriptures that actually contradicted him. He can't quote the Bible to get out of this one. There are no contemporary prophetic voices to back him up. And his audience is like the clergy, the religious leaders who know him and they know the faith backwards and forwards. I love the way one scholar, Willie Jennings, put it. He says, the only argument Peter could give was no argument at all. Simply an experience. And so, step by step, Peter will explain himself, but it will not be simply an explanation of himself. It will be an explanation of God pressing in on him. Three times I saw this vision. Three times I told God no, but God kept coming back to me. And finally, I concluded, who am I that I should hinder God? Peter explains, forced by the religious leaders, he lays bare his soul. What is our obsession with explanations? We've lived through this global pandemic, and it's kind of amusing how many religious people have tried to offer explanations. It's the same usual suspects. Just silly things they say, right? God is punishing us. God is giving us a warning. God is giving us a sign, right? There, this is what, like one scholar said, it's like knee-jerk reactions and really bad theology, but we are so programmed we have to have some explanation. Here's the way N.T. Wright put it. He said, in no way is it part of the Christian vocation to be able to explain what's happening and why. In fact, the Christian vocation is not to be able to explain and to lament instead. Right, we come in the face of inexplicable suffering. What they say this week now, over a million people who've died from COVID, inexplicable suffering. A loved one's diagnosis, the death of a friend, tragically, suffering. We see it on the news, suffering in Sudan, all around the world, suffering in Ukraine. And we want to explain it? You can't explain it. The only thing to do is lament, to cry out, why, why, and not get an answer and plunge yourself deeper into that cry. We, we just, we're so obsessed with explanations. I, I read this week that actually we're so obsessed with explanations that that sort of explains the rise in conspiracy theories. Like all this COVID conspiracy and we've got all these different conspiracies because the, the, the institutions that used to make sense and help us make sense of things, they're just not working anymore. And so we'll do anything to get an answer, anything to explain what's happening. The church in Jerusalem is facing a real struggle. Real questions like, are we changing the rules? The rules said, you're not one of us. Is God changing the rules? They want an explanation. We want explanations. You want us to include who? But you said they were outsiders, sinners, unclean, impure. A few weeks ago, I suggested to you that the book of Acts is really a book of Easter stories. 
Stories of resurrection, stories of new life breaking out in unexpected places, surprising everyone. I I will tell you, I'm a preacher, and gosh, this is a lot harder than it looks. So it is rare that I, like, am critical of other preachers. But I will tell you, the silliest sermon I have ever heard in my life was this pastor trying to offer, I think it was on Easter Sunday, trying to offer a scientific explanation of how God raised Jesus from the dead. Even the Bible doesn't attempt to do something like that. There's no explanation like, here's how God raised Jesus from the dead. No, it's, guess what? We were encountered, we were met by the risen Jesus. No explanation, just resurrection. There's a sign in the Church of All Nations, which is the church that sits in the middle of the Garden of Gethsemane uh, in Jerusalem. And there's a sign. I want you to see this sign. If we can advance the slide once. This is the sign. It's outside the church, and it says, please, no explanations inside the church. Now, what that sign is addressed uh, to our tour guides who are going to walk in and tell you about the, the marble from the, this century and the architectural details and explain, explain all the things that you need to know. And their point is like, do your explaining outside because this is a house of prayer. But it does occur to me that maybe that's a sign that every church should hang up. Like no explanations here. Here's the way Ellen Davis, a great scholar and theologian, put it. She said, in the church... We have been baptized into the mystery of Christ. And so long as we attend to God with every heartbeat, we are drawn more deeply into the mystery that infinitely exceeds our understanding and power of expression. A mystery, a mercy, friends, that goes beyond even our wildest hopes and imaginings. So there can be no explanations in the church. No, she says, let us speak softly with wonder. How'd you get here? How'd I get here? There's no explanation for what God has done. That's what happens when Peter stops talking. Acts tells us that when they heard Peter's testimony, they were silenced. They stopped talking. They had no words. They were quiet. God doing a new thing, surprising them, changing the rules, expanding the welcome. It was new, and it was frightening, I'm sure, and it was risky, and so they were silent. Silence, Richard Rohr says, is like the net underneath the tightrope walker. When we can't find the words, when words fail us, when we fail, when we figure out that we were wrong, silence is that great spaciousness spaciousness and safety net beneath us. Silence will hold us up, receive our mistakes, and give us the courage to learn and grow. Silence helps us ask better questions. I was listening to a guy this week, uh, and he was talking about grief. He was talking about the experience of, of losing someone that you love. And he said, I sat in, in this question like, God, why did you take him away from me? 
And I sat in the silence, and the silence gave me a different question. The question became not, God, why did you take them from me? The question became, God, why did you choose me to be the beneficiary of their love? Why was I so fortunate? Why was I so lucky to have them in my life? And he said, I was just awestruck, filled with gratitude. Silence may be our best reaction when, like the early Christians, we're not sure. And we're surprised to find that God moves in ways we don't understand. The United Methodist Church has continuously, I think since the, well, since we started in 1968, we have been debating the inclusion of gays and lesbians in the church. And so often, as I thought about it, I realized what we're doing on, on both sides is like, let me explain, let me explain. And so we're, we're going to explain, I'm going to give you all the reasons and the rationale. And uh, maybe what we ought to do is just a little bit more like what Peter does, like I marvel and give thanks that in spite of our best efforts to tell them you're not welcome, that gay and lesbian people still want to come to our church. They still want to be United Methodist. One of my dearest friends from college is gay, and I was talking with him a couple years ago. He had moved to a new town, and his real struggle was trying to find a church that would welcome and accept him. And... Um, he said, I kind of feel like a fish out of water wherever I go. And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, it's hard to find a church that will accept, accept me. And actually, because I'm Christian, most people in the gay community are pretty suspicious of me because of all the harm that Christians have done to them over the years. And we talked, and it was just the, the agony, agony he was going through. And I said, man, I think I'd probably just give it all up. And he looked back at me, and he said, God will not let me do that. Well, I just sat there, speechless, silenced. And I said to myself, God, you are alive, moving in spite of us. Silence. It's a gift. It helps us know what, what is that new thing God is doing. You ever have a difficult decision to make? Discerning the future, the future for your family, maybe. Um, I think about our seniors making huge decisions about the future. I, I am not a list maker generally, but anytime I've had a big decision to make, I have made a list. And I write down all the pros and I write down all the cons. And here's the explanation for doing this. And here's an explanation for doing that. And guess what? It never really helps all that much. The closest thing to an answer I've ever gotten has come when I have simply been silent, been silent, and, and in that silence, tuned in to the mystery that is at the heart of God. There's an icon on the screen, there's an icon on the cover of your bulletin. It is called uh, Our Lady of Silence. It's Mary, the mother of Jesus. And I love this. What she did, she's basically like shushing us, like shh. There's a cool story about this icon. Um, pope Francis, when he got to be pope, uh, arrived at the Vatican and discovered that there was incredible infighting and they were arguing with each other. They couldn't agree about things and they were gossiping. And, 
And uh, I think about the early church, like, did you hear what Peter did? And I don't think we can trust Peter. Like all this back and forth. And uh, there's a commentator who said, before Francis arrived, the way you squashed gossip in the Vatican was you took people before the doctrinal committees and you brought the hammer down on them, like explain and, and offer all the heresies they've committed. And Francis shows up, and his solution is to hang this icon. He put it on the main uh, hallway by the elevator so that everybody arriving for the work or arriving to meet him, doing any kind of business at the Vatican, would have to see Mary. Shh. Shh. Silence. My father loved to cut out uh, bulletin covers. He would take the bulletin covers home, cut them out, and glue them on blocks of wood and decoupage them. And my office is littered with bulletin covers on blocks of wood that he made over the years. And um, I started thinking about it, and I thought, what would happen if you took that bulletin home and cut that icon out, and I don't know, taped it to your computer at work or maybe in a notebook that you're going to take to class or maybe on your dashboard or on your bedside table and just let Mary invite you this week to be silent, to be still. Your boss comes in, your coworker comes in and starts yelling at you. You're nervous about a test hoping you will pass, or a bully comes in and is trying to make you feel small and insignificant, or a car cuts you off in rush hour, or you're anxious, or you're afraid, or you're grieving, over, or you're overwhelmed by the noise all around you and in your head. And there's Mary inviting you to be still, to be silent. There's nothing to prove you have nothing to explain. Tune in to the mystery at the heart of God and pay attention to the new thing God might be doing. So I have a confession. It's not the kind of thing you want to hear a preacher confess, but here it goes. I spent all week long working on this sermon and I have absolutely no idea how to end it which means I'm just going to keep on going. <laughs> no, how many times I know I've heard myself and thought that would have been a good place to stop. Oh, well. <laughs> I couldn't figure out what's a good way to end the sermon. And then, you know what? I had this icon sitting right there next to me, and I saw Mary going, Shh, and I thought, that's it. That's it. A gift to me and to you. Just some moments, some minutes of silence.